enjoy the work of God in the church. And Second uh, Timothy is a book I love. I love it because of the challenges to strength that it gives to young ministers of the gospel, and that's a place that I definitely find myself in. Um, I'm delighted that I don't have some of the additional challenges that Timothy had. I don't have incredible stomach ailments that he had. I don't have uh, people seeking to kill me or anything like that. And uh, I don't have people among my church that are promoting false heresy um, against the glory of Christ. Um, but in many other ways, I love the book of Second Timothy because of what it teaches to us and what it teaches to me. Um, to this point in the book, um, I've started a series on the book of Second Timothy like three years ago. And so in my once or twice per year that I preach, I've oftentimes just continued to go back to that because it's been good for my heart and my soul. Um, and what we're, where we're at right now, Paul has been addressing Timothy directly, but now he turns his focus a little bit and t- addresses Timothy as to how he should direct the church. Um, and so not just for ministers of the gospel vocationally or professionally, but for people that come to church on a day-in and day-out basis, people that are like me, and like you, that listen to God's word, and that have the struggles of life, and that wonder, what does it look like for me to live as becomes a follower of Christ, even when that means that I'm called to suffer for Christ, even when that means that it's not going to be a simple task, when it's not going to be flowers and roses and ease all the time. And that's where we're at today, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 19. It says this, remind them of these things, where we've just been is Paul gives this really short, succinct summary of the gospel. And he says, this is what the gospel says. If we have died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So here's what it says. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take this word of yours and that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that it is apt and appropriate to our day. And Lord, thank you that it, what it does is it teaches us. Lord, I pray that these words of yours and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight this morning. Uh, I pray this in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. There are a lot of times where I read scripture and I get to a point um, where it says do something well or work hard. 
And there's a part of me that fights against that and rails against that because the tendency that many of us probably have is we can look at scripture and we can read it asking this question, what do I have to do? And the tendency that we can easily and quickly fall into is that we read God's word with a legalistic bent and ask it, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Much of us, much of the time, I think that we could really identify with the rich young ruler who says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we read scripture and it says, do this. He's asking for the list of rules to do. And so we come to a place like 2 Timothy and it says, do your best to present yourself as a worker who um, approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And we would say, okay, let's stop right there. And my goal and my ambition and my aim is to do with all the power that I have to work hard to be someone that is approved by God, to earn the Lord's approval and become an approved worker for his kingdom because we are called by Christ into his kingdom work in the world. But this is not what this text is saying, just work hard. The workman who is approved by God is one who rightly handles God's words. The words of truth. From the first days of creation, work itself is instated by God and it's instated as a good thing. God himself is at work and he says of his work that it was very good. Um, and then he equips man and he puts them in the garden to work. Um, Tim Keller says this about work. He says that though God, all God made was good, it was still to a great degree undeveloped. God left creation with deep untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor. I love the way he uses the word cultivation there because cultivation brings with it the imagery of growth. The imagery of beauty coming from a place where beauty wasn't before. Those of you who are gardeners understand this imagery of cultivation because you plant something where barren ground once was and the vision that you have for that ground is that in its place would grow flowers, would grow herbs, would grow vegetables, would grow something of value and of worth and of beauty. And that's what God gave work as a means of mankind to do. And so in life, we are called and we're equipped to work. Um, verse 15 of our text this morning is a summon to work. It's not just a summon to the college student to get off mom and dad's couch and go find a job. It's not just a summon to do something at all, but this is a summon to God's people, to the church that Paul is writing through Timothy to, to be about God's work of handling truth correctly. This isn't a job description only and primarily for those in ministry, but this is a job description for every follower of Christ Jesus. So for the mom who every day spends their time disciplining and correcting and loving and making meals and cleaning up after and instructing their children in the ways of God, this is a job description for a mom, rightly handling the word of truth. This is the right job description for a father who gets up and has a family quiet time with his family. And then a man who goes to work and has a Bible study with a couple guys at work or the college student who's involved in a D group, or for the college student who is moving past just being involved and now is leading others. This is a job description for the follower of Jesus Christ, to rightly handle God's word because it is truth. 
John 15, where Jesus is giving an, an analogy of cultivation and of growth, he says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch can't bear fruit apart from me, neither can you, unless you abide in me. We're called to rightly handle so that we then can rightly divide and give to other people so that we bear fruit and therefore fruit grows in other people's lives as well. So if there's a summons to work, if there's a call to work from scripture, then there must be a profile or the job description that is looked for in this worker, right? None of us ever go out and apply for a job that has no job description at all. We don't hop on monster.com and type in, I want a job in Carrollton, Georgia, and it just says work. It says, I'm looking for a job doing this or that or something else. The job is specific and there's a qualification for that job and there's a qualification for the person who would complete that job. And so the approved worker, what, we first, what I want to do this morning first is I want to look at what the approved worker does not look like. And then I want to change gears and look at what the approved worker does not look like. So what does an approved worker not look like, or what does an approved worker not do? First of all, an approved worker does not quarrel. We don't use the word quarrel very often. Um, I don't use the word quarrel very often because I just can't really say it correctly. It doesn't sound like I, I get closer to squirrel uh, and less like quarrel. Um, but quarreling is a very easy thing to do. As, an, as I thought through the word quarreling, here's what I envision in the word quarreling. I envision what children do, right? They nitpick on little things. They quarrel back at their parents and saying, is that really the words that you said? Because what you said was this, and what I, what I am doing is sort of almost the same thing, so I'm doing the right thing. And it becomes this word battle where we go back and forth with one another, and we debate and we talk about little teeny minute details. And what they end up doing is exactly what this text tells us that word quarreling does. It does no good. It does no good to anyone involved. And Paul says of word quarreling in the Christian life that it not only is ineffective, but it also ruins those who hear it. So I want you to think through this. What do word quarrels in the Christian life look like? I'm talking to us, reformed, dogmatic people that think we have it all figured out. We quarrel and we argue about little tiny things. We allow these little tiny things to divide fellowship. I remember as a high school student getting into a very extended debate um, over my friend, with a friend of mine, um, who opened a prayer with these words, Dear Jesus. And as a 15-year-old, I was like, we don't pray to Jesus, we pray to God, through Jesus. And we, ex we entered into this extended debate, and at the end of this debate, there was no good done for me. There's no good done for my friend as a result of that. And what it did was it drove this gap of fellowship for, between us for no deep reason at all. There was no reason for such a debate but it was a stupid and a foolish argument that drove a quarrel. We think that quarrels oftentimes are going to solve something, right? If we engage in a debate with somebody else, we say, I'm going to change 
I'm going to uh, correct some kind of an error. But here's what John Kelly, a theological academic at Oxford in the 50s, wrote about these intellectual type of sparring matches. He says this, Theological discussion, which is in the end, are purely verbal, have nothing to do with the realities of Christian religion. These theological sparring matches in which we go back and forth trying to prove who's right are nothing that affect greatly our walk with the Lord in the way in which we live as becomes a follower of Christ and have more to do with our ego. I know that um, every time that I find myself involved in a quarrel, though it may have begun with a wise or with a good desire to correct an error, what ended up happening was that my ego and my anger gets involved, and I feel in my stomach that uneasy, angsty feeling, and I can feel in my ears like the heat and the tension of saying, I now don't want to correct an error so much as I want to win an argument. It's ruined to us. It does no good for us and for the immediate here, but also think about this, guys. It ruins the second-tier audience as well. I spend a lot of time uh, at Chick-fil-A and at the coffee shop, and as I spend time in these establishments, there's a lot of times where I hear conversations that are engaged in by two believers And oftentimes, quarreling does ensue. And I can tell you this, that there are plenty of others that are not just the one that they are debating with, that hear the conversation, and that hear the argument. And because of these, the gospel, which is supposed to be an aroma of Christ to a world that's dying, just becomes a stench of our own ego. And I can tell you that sometimes these conversations, they leave me as a follower of Christ and as a believer just with an unholy and an unhealthy taste in my mouth that just lead me to say, I don't want to be involved in that. I don't want anything to do with this quarrel or even necessarily with those people because of the negative negative taste that our own ego brings into these arguments. I studied a little bit about what it means to hear and what it means to listen this week. And hearing is a physical process. It happens whether or not we're engaged in it or not. Our eardrums continue to pick up the vibrations of sound whether or not we are intentionally paying attention to what it says. And studies show that our ears can pick up around 1,000 words per minute. And none of us can listen and actually understand what we're listening because listening is a process that not only engages our physical senses of our ears, but it also engages our mind. And most of us listen in the 120 to 160 words per minute range. And we have to listen carefully, but hearing that we may not be directly involved, it still gets into us. And even because of that, the children that listen to us as we argue with friends about little nuanced theological things. It can become a ruin to them. The waitress who comes to our table as we're arguing over things that are not edifying to one another and building up the body of Christ is influenced by our conversation. And the people one or two tables over, the people in our classes, they're influenced by what we engage with and the words that we choose to use with our mouth toward one another as fellow believers. 
the approved worker of God does not engage in quarrel. Second of all, the approved worker does not irreverently babble. As I was reading this section, I found myself a little bit confused. So I relied heavily on some commentators on what irreverent babble looks like. Because as I listened to this and as I read this text, I thought, irreverent babble, my mind immediately goes to what Paul would talk about in 2 Corinthians saying, it's unholy for uh, believers to even talk about these things. And my mind went toward, um, toward unholy and unwholesome language. It went toward sin of a gross nature. Because I think that is, un- that is irreverent and that is true. But commentators seem to all agree. Um, and as I read and as I studied, I agree with them as well. Um, that Babel is what which infant children do. As they're just beginning to learn language, they just babble on. They just use their mouth and they just run it. And it goes and it goes and it goes. And it doesn't have any effect on those around them, except for the fact that we, we think of children that it's cute. But irreverent babble, some, uh, um, John Stott commented on this, and he said what Paul is using is a brilliant piece of satire. And they, he's saying these people that would just talk round and round about Christian issues while not applying it directly to themselves are irreverent babblers because what irreverent babble does is it leads to greater ungodliness. And for us, James 5, through 24 says that if we hear the word of God and if we do not do what it says, then we're like one who looks at himself in a mirror and right away forgets what kind of a person we are and we go away unchanged by it. And John Stott says, this is what Paul, this is the kind of irreverent babble that Paul would talk about that does, that leads toward greater ungodliness because godlessness does not just look like the at, like unholiness. But godlessness also looks like a place where godliness is not growing and thriving. When the word of God only touches our intellect and it only reaches our mind and we engage with it on an intellectual and academic sense and then we go to our community group or we go to our small group or we go back home to our family and we sit around lunch And we say, man, I really wish that my neighbor had heard that message because these things of God that were talked about really apply very well to my neighbor. Or I really liked how that was said, but I wish so-and-so, the preacher, I wish Ben had said that in a different way, or I wish Ben had worn a tie this morning. That would have really helped me engage with the message. That is irreverent babble which leads us to godliness because when the word of God is heard by our ears, then what it does is it requires of us to listen to what it says. We're called by God as we sit under the word of God when it's proclaimed and as we read the word of God to listen to it and to then do what it says. Anything less than that is godlessness because we are hearing and being unchanged by God's words, which are words of life to us. And this kind of talk can spread like gangrene. Gangrene is an interesting disease. It's a condition that occurs, this is what WebMD tells me, <laughs> when bodily tissue dies. Okay? So it's caused 
I quote from WebMD, by a loss of blood supply due to an underlying illness, injury, and or infection. Dr. Earle taught me the, the layman's simple sentence for medical technology speaking, and it's this. Oxygen is good, and blood goes round and round. <laughs> so when oxygen fills our bloodstream and goes round and round, that is a good thing for our body, and gangrene is a condition that occurs when blood supply is lost to a place, therefore that place dies. And where death is, gangrene can then take up residence and begin to spread to other parts of the body that were healthy. Our unholy talk, our talk around the gospel that sounds Christian-y and has good Christians speak in it, but is devoid of what changes our life, is gangrenous not only to us, but to the body of Christ that is around us. Because you and I are called as members of one body to Christ. That's what Ephesians tells us. That you and I are members of a body. And so your growth and your health is crucial to the growth and the health of the body around you. The approved worker of God does not irreverently babble about the things of God. We handle God's word with truth and with meaning and with emphasis because it applies to our lives. Because if left unchecked, irreverent babble leads to swerving from the truth. Swerving is not just a slight deviation. It's still close to the truth. But swerving is a dramatic change, of course. We swerve to avoid a wreck. We swerve to avoid the animal that runs out in front of our car. Swerving is an intentional veering away from the straight and narrow path that we're pursuing, that we're going along. Hymenaeus and Philetus that are talked about here are names that to you and I don't mean very much at all. Hymenaeus is only mentioned one other time in Scripture in 1 Timothy and Philetus. This is the only time we, met, we come across his name. But for the Ephesian church and for Timothy and for Paul, these are real-life examples that God has given through Paul to them to say these people that swear from the truth they're people that are among you, that you know. It's easy when left unchecked for us to wander from the truth and to walk away into error, into heresy. What Paul, in what Philetus and Hymenaeus are talking about, their swerve, their departure from the truth, here's the nature of it. They're saying the resurrection has already happened. You and I would agree the resurrection of Christ has already happened. Christ has been raised from the dead. First Corinthians tells us that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then the gospel and what we believe is meaningless, but Christ has been raised. Therefore, you and I can have life, and we have hope that one day we too will rise. But Hymenaeus and Philetus, the nature of their talk about resurrection is they were saying to the Ephesian church, you guys have the good life right now. This is the best it's going to get. Does that sound pretty familiar to you? Hymenaeus and Philetus, their heresy still lives today. The fact that because we trust in Jesus, there are those in our country, and there are those in our world, there are those in our community, I'm sure, that would say, 
Because if you believe in Jesus Christ, man, you can name and claim whatever you want to, and it's going to be yours. The good life can happen. The age-old message of spiritual gangrene is still living, and it is still active in our world. It's still active among churches. It's still active on the self-help inspirational literature section in publics. That's there. And therefore, the scary thing about this error, the scary thing about swerving from the truth is that it still does resemble truth. So then you and I, if we are to respond to God's call from Scripture through Paul to say doing, that we would be those who do our best to present ourselves as a worker approved by God who has no need to be ashamed because we accurately and rightly divide the word of truth, then we need to see what does it look like. If this is what it doesn't look like, then the opposite of that is true. For what does it look like to rightly and accurately divide God's word for our lives, for our family for the people that we relate with on a day-in and day-out basis, for those that we lead in a Bible study or a small group, for those that are in our community group, for those that are in our church, for those that are on the mission field that God has put us in. We need to be those that rightly divide the word of truth. So as I studied through rightly dividing the word of truth this week, it's an interesting path, that, or it's an interesting word choice that Paul uses. Rightly dividing the word of truth in the Greek means to cut a straight path. To cut a straight path with the word of truth. That's what the Greek behind this text means. God's workman should be one who cuts a straight path with God's word. The Roman world was phenomenally advanced when it came to transportation. I mean, they had the first postal system that worked really well. Am I right, Sandy, on that? Um, the, so, in terms of building roads, the Romans knew all about this. The Greeks would have known about it from being around the Romans. And so, Paul is giving, bringing them a, a surveying term that a road builder would use to cut a straight path. And so, when a Roman citizen or a Roman engineer would go to build a road, they wouldn't just start at point A and hope that eventually they line up at point B, but they would take careful measurements and they would say, where do the high places need to be brought down? And where do low places need to be raised up so that this path that we have is a good path? That it's a path that when Roman citizen number one hops on it here in this city, he has confidence and certainty that he is going to safely arrive at his desired destination. God's word for us is a straight path to walk along. John the Baptist was a surveyor of Christ. He was a forerunner to Jesus Christ. Here's what Isaiah 40 would say about him. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord hands double for all her sins. Is this not the gospel? This is the gospel. This is what Christ does for us. He comforts us. Our war against Christ has been, or against God, has been satisfied by Christ's blood. Our iniquity has been pardoned, and we have received from the Lord's hand blessing in the place of where curse should have been. 
And here's what, here was John the Baptist prophetically foretold. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken so John was a voice crying in the wilderness, make a straight path for the Lord, accurately dividing the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a path. It's a highway. But it's also spoken of as a narrow path and as a hard road. We see that those that find the highway of Christ in Scripture, that it is not an easy road, that it is not wide and broad, because the wide and broad path we know leads to destruction, but the narrow road leads to eternal life. We also know this, that it is a clean and a well-laid-out path in the pages of Scripture. God makes himself known to you and I through the pages of Scripture. And it's not known in a kind of an ethereal sense in which we have to guess and question a whole lot. But we know the means of salvation is solely through Christ. We know that we are sinners because Scripture tells us. We know that the one mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ can be our atoning sacrifice because that's what Scripture tells us. It's clear and it's well laid out, though narrow and hard. God's workman is one who understands this path and who cuts it straight for other people, who lays it out clearly so that they too can find the means of eternal life through the pages of Scripture as God has given it to us. Psalm 19, verse 14, is a verse that I love. It says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As a young person, um, I would read this passage and I would kind of live in the thinking that this was kind of like we're hoping, we're praying that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our sight would be, or of our heart would be acceptable to the Lord. And I was thinking, man, this is one of those, man, I hope I've been good, good enough to get that, that radio flyer from Santa for Christmas. But the, the Psalm 19 isn't just a hope and a prayer and a dream of an expected result. We can know that this is true we can know that this is true as we rightly and accurately divide the words of Scripture, as we think on them, as we meditate on them, as we th and as we expound them and explain them both to our own heart and to others. Psalm 119, verses 5 and 6 say this, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I will not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. And then verses 9 through 11 read like this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Christians, King's Chapel, parents and students, 
May we be a people whose words, whose meditations, whose thoughts are acceptable to our King, who our Savior. That's why King's Chapel has this name. This is the place we desire to be a people among whom God's glory dwells. If God's glory is going to dwell here, we've got to know him deeply and intimately and rightly. May we not be quarrelsome babblers, irreverent talkers, people that swerve away from the truth, but my prayer for our students and our student ministry, my prayer for you as a whole, is that we would be a people that are known in our community as people who get God's word straight, who accurately divide it for our own lives, who accurately divide it corporately, and then live in light of that accurate division of God's word. I pray that our city would see that. Because as they see that, that's what makes us an aroma of Christ Jesus to a world that's hurting, to a world that needs hope. If we're just up here promoting our own opinions and our own value and bickering over word choices and carpet colors in the sanctuary, we're never going to be a people that is known in our community, in our world, and known by God as being workmen approved by God. None of you who work a job ever want to have that moment where your boss walks in and say, you know what you've done all this last week? I hate it. It's terrible. You've got to start over. We don't want that. That's, that's never the goal. I don't know anybody who's ever set out on an endeavor to fail it. Our goal is to receive approval for good work at the end of our work. And for the approved workmen of Christ Jesus, those who flee from irreverent babble, who walk away from quarrels, and instead are humble and teach in those moments. For those who stay straight on God's, uh, according to God's word, there's a great reward that's laid out. The one who expends all their energy and all their effort in pursuing Christ Jesus, man, the reward of that is wonderful. Listen to verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. I love hearing those words. Because what those words tell me is as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am known by God. Because my faith is steadfastly adhering to this word of truth, I know that I am known and approved by God. That the approval of God is not something that I have to hope that I'm going to receive one day. But I am known by God, his Belonging to him. While we were on vacation last week with my family, um, it, was, it was Friday. It was the last day we're, we're down at the beach. So we're about, uh, we're getting ready to pack up. And so when vacation comes to an end, there's always a little bit of a sense of dread for me. Uh, I dislike packing stuff back up. I dislike the fact that vacation's over. Uh, I enjoy getting back to work, but I also don't like being away from vacation. 
Um, and so this Friday night, uh, we're, we're getting ready to, uh, we're cleaning up from dinner, whatever, we're playing some games. And Calvin has disappeared, and none of us realized that Calvin was gone until he came back. And Calvin comes back from, and he comes back downstairs, and he has this huge smile on his face. And he says, hey, Mom and Dad, i got to show you something. And the immediate gut feeling that I received was one of a little bit of dread because what I was anticipating was a, a colossal, like, pillow fort. Um, I was expecting something that was going to require extra cleaning up on top of getting ready to leave. Um, so Calvin brings us upstairs, and Audrey and I follow him upstairs, and we get right outside his door, and he says, now close your eyes. So we close our eyes, and then and he says, now follow me. And so, you know, you kind of like peek down under your hand, so you don't really see what he's trying to show you until you get there. And we get into his room, and he says, now open your eyes. And Audrey and I open our eyes. And where I was expecting the worst, there was something far different that was laid out in front of us. Calvin had, of his own initiative, he had run upstairs, and he knew we were getting ready to leave. And so he had made all the beds in the room. Not just his bed, but he'd made Micah's bed. He'd made Hosanna's bed. There's like a queen bed in there too that they took naps on and watched movies on. He had made that thing too. I mean, like better than a lot of beds that I've made myself. <laughs> um, he did a really good job making the beds. And so not only were the beds made, but then he, um, he shows us how he had folded all the laundry. Um, so all the laundry that had been strewn all over their room from a week of vacationing was now folded up and put in their bags. And all the shoes were, like, lined up along the wall, and he'd folded their beach towels and put them on the counter. I mean, like, did a spot-up job. It was really good. And so Calvin knew in that moment that he had received his mom and dad's approval. He wasn't waiting for us to come upstairs to say, will I get it when they get here? But he came to say, mom and dad, come delight in what I've done because I know it's approved by you. And so instead of saying, hey, Calvin, clean up the pillow fort, like I thought I was going to have to say, all of a sudden I got to say, Calvin, tell me about the good work that you did. And he got to tell me, I made my bed. And I made Calvin's, or I made Micah's, and I made Hosanna's, and I folded laundry, and I put the shoes away. And then he ruined it, and he says, and Micah didn't help. Um, but, you know, that happens. It happens. There was this great sense. I mean, like, the love that boiled up in my heart for Calvin was monstrous. So we called my parents up. We called everybody up and let them delight also in Calvin's work um, because that's the kind of behavior that parents want to cultivate, Right? We would say, we desire that our kids would do things that are good and wise and right. And for Calvin, this little moment was one where he says, this was a really good thing. And we say, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that Calvin's action didn't make him my son. It didn't garner my love and affection for Calvin. But what it did is it proves in a human sense, the second half of verse 19. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Followers of Jesus Christ, here is why 
we follow Jesus Christ. Here's why we live in a way that's not quarrelsome, in a way in which we don't just babble on about things of God. And this is why we keep careful watch on our walk so that we don't depart from truth, is because we desire in the core of our being to please our Savior, to please the one who has given himself on our behalf. The reward of a good worker is they have no shame. The opposite of shame is honor and glory and dignity. And the worker of God has no reason to be ashamed. Here's what Paul was looking for. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We look forward to a crown of righteousness. We look forward to the glories of heaven. But there is also the joy on earth of a job well done. There is the joy that comes to a parent when they lead their children in a family devotional and their kids get the things of God. There's the joy of a uh, of an employee at just a workplace when a coworker through their continued testimony of Christ's righteousness and continual evangelism comes to know the Lord. There's the word reward on a college campus when your roommate comes to know Christ. That's a huge reward. There's honor from the Lord Jesus. There's glory, there's dignity in that. When we speak truth where it needs to be heard, there's honor in that. When we decide to say, I'm going to be honest about the way in which my sin is wrecking me and where I need Jesus and his um, blood to heal me, there's honor and there's glory because what God's word is doing is it's laying our hearts bare and then it's going in and it's healing us because the gospel is a gospel that heals us because Christ was broken that we could be healed. The worker approved by God hears from the good shepherd, that one is mine. And because we are his, therefore we live in light of that. And so my challenge to you this morning is that you would do this, that you would make every single effort to present yourself to God as one who doesn't need to be ashamed, but who rightly handles the word of truth. That you would rightly handle the word of truth in your quiet time with the Lord. For students, I call them on this all the time. That means you need to be spending time with the Lord Jesus. Psalm 119 is telling us that the way in which we keep our life approved by God is that we keep it according to God's word. Therefore, we've got to know it. And in order to know it, we have to be in it. So you've got to be in God's word. Make every effort to present yourself to God approved in the way that you lead your family, in the way that you lead your spouse. And the way that you live your life and the conversations and the, uh, the way in which you present the gospel to coworkers and to family members and to neighbors. It's a hard job. It's a big calling. 
but it's one that God has given us himself as strength. And here's the, here's the beauty of the gospel. When Christ gave you his righteousness and brought your sin upon himself on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for when your work is not approved. For when you quarrel, when you lapse into irreverent babble, whether that looks like gossip or applying the gospel to your friends and your neighbors instead of yourself, Christ's blood atones for your unrighteousness. And he gives you himself in the place of your sin. Perhaps you're feeling burned out this morning because you feel as though your life and your work are unapproved. And so here's what I would say. Jesus Christ is the worker who is approved by God. And he offers himself to you freely through faith so that your work will be approved by the Most High God. And that the reward of that work would be that you would hear the words also, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end of your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there is there's great burden that comes when we see our unholiness and our own unrighteousness, when we evaluate our conversations and our attitudes and the actions of our hearts. But gracious God, there is such hope that comes when we see that there was a worker approved by God. His name was Jesus, and he was given on our behalf. So Lord, I pray that for these men and women, for these boys and girls, for these students, for these moms and dads and these employers and employees, Lord, that you would give them supernatural strength to go in grace and to walk as becomes a follower of Christ, to accurately cut straight the word of God so that the things of God would be plain both to them and to those that are around him. God, you have called us into your work. And so, Lord, as workmen approved, we desire that our lives would bring glory and honor to our King. I pray this in the name of our Savior, who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.